he was at the at the at the, at the beatification of uh, yeah. Brother McGivney. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But Bishop Whelan's homily was so on point. Wow, isn't it good? Yeah, he's he's a solid. He's great. He really is. So. Wow. You hear it from me, but maybe there'll be another beatification in me too. We'll see. <laughs> we I, we take the vow of obedience, but still. Indeed. Indeed. I hear you. So no more guest lecturers the rest of this semester. It's all for the Chris. Oh. So better, better or worse. Oh. Hi, Dan. How's everybody? Hey, Dan. How are you? Good. Speaking of snoring, <laughs> right? Oh. Wow, it's harsh, man. Truth hurts. <laughs> and I actually mean mean that because he's usually very early. Usually one of the first ones on. I've stopped by to make sure that I'm not sleeping. <laughs> We're grateful for that. John, she yes. says she's working on a nice soup for you. She'll bring for it on the night of, uh, on, the, on the night of uh, uh, candidacy. You know, oh, I can really? stop. I can stop by earlier than that. All right, so that makes it easier. If we bring a candidate candidacy, I'm going to have to share it. Is there going to be a recept something after? I don't think there is going to. I would doubt it. I would doubt it. The poor guys that were ordained on Saturday, they could have fit a lot more people there. Yeah, it was the empty cathedral. Like hundreds more. 
Yeah. They give you 12 tickets. Yeah, it was sad seeing it so empty for the guys. You know, it was unfortunate. The families were there, which was good, but it was kind of sad seeing, you know, usual crowds just right. there. Who is this guy? Who is that? <laughs> what? Halloween's <laughs> over. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. That is hard. He went blonde. He went blonde. Is that John Denver or uh, Halloween? Halloween's over. It's all Souls Day now, man. It's all Souls Day. It's all Souls Day. We need to pray for your soul. I thought it was a guest. I thought it was a guest lecture. It's White Souls too. We tell you. I won't say anything. I saw it on Facebook. So. Ah, okay. Don't say anything. But what character am I? Fred from Scooby Doo. Very good. I got a Great Dane. I got to know that one. Okay. Hey Peter, save that. Peter, save that wig for me. I might use it in the future. Okay. As George knows, I had my Halloween party in my office today. Oh, okay. Everybody was a member of Scooby Doo. Have you seen my great Dane walk in here? He's he's he looks just like Scooby. <laughs> as long as you don't look like Scooby. I try not to. <laughs> Hold on a minute, boys. I got a better one than that. <laughs> I'm going to go get my wig. <laughs> Jim's wearing his. I was, uh, I was Tiger King yesterday. <laughs> oh, that's, that's clever. Very good. You people I know with Tiger King. So anybody need a mullet, I've got the wig for you. <laughs> I'm from Wisconsin. I used What's to be your uniform. <laughs> a couple of guys short here tonight. I'm sure what's going on. No, Vincent was really well. What's yeah, Vince, uh, I think Vince reached out to you. He's not feeling well. Yeah, yeah, he did. That's not, that's just fine. There's a... Uh, Bob Levy is near. I guess we'll we'll get started because it's after seven, so we'll begin, shall we? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. It's also the faithful party to the mercy of God. Rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the right. Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, gents. So it's um, good to be with you guys again for the second half of the course as we're kind of moving along here. And we're transitioning today fully into the session on medical ethics. We will leave us a few classes here and before we go into social ethics. So kind of like moving ahead now in the second part of the course. And um, one, of the, one of the first things to cover tonight is we're going to hear a lot of in the next few weeks. And that's the word dignity. Because we're going to hear about it, medical ethics, end of life issues, beginning of life issues, social issues. Dignity is going to be one of the main words we're going to hear a lot over the next few weeks. So you have to understand what we mean 
by this term? And how does somebody how does somebody attain or how does somebody have dignity? What kind of um, is the reasoning behind saying that humans have dignity? One little note first, guys. If you have any questions, just call them out. Don't worry about muting your microphones. Just stop me mid lecture and say, "Father, I have a question." Just interrupt if you have to. Not, not a big deal. All right. So what we say about this is that human dignity comes from Genesis, which tells us that humans are made in the image and likeness of God. We hear this so often, it's like commonplace for us. We forget what that really means. In Genesis, when Adam looks at Seth, his son, after Cain and Abel, Adam says that Seth is made in his image and likeness. So to say that someone is made in your image and likeness applies a filial relationship of like father to child. So it's much more than just a nice ethereal concept of, you know, made in God's image, it's wonderful, like this, it's great. But it means more than that. It gets to the very heart of the fact that we are sons in this context, sons of God. And because of that reality, our dignity is inscribed in the very nature of who we are. In addition to that, as Christians, we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our redemption, our salvation, was not purchased on something cheap. The most expensive thing in the history of the world, the blood of Christ, is what redeems us and buys us back to God. Ransomed, as we say, for the Father. So because of that, we have dignity. And also on this All Souls Day, good for us to remember that our destiny, we're headed to heaven. That's what we are going toward. So our dignity is God's image and likeness, the blood of Christ, and our destiny as people that are going to one day please God, be with God forever in heaven. And because of that, nothing can deprive us of that dignity. Even the worst sinner in the world retains some semblance of that dignity. A person can act beneath their dignity, but they never lose their dignity. Even the worst sinners always retain some semblance of the, of the divine that is living within them. So important for us. On the other hand, though, when a person acts virtuously, when a person acts in a way that is holy or sanct or, or, or sacred, they realize the full depth and breadth of the dignity given to us by God. Virtue allows us to see how dignified we are in the eyes of God. And the more profound we act in our dignity, the more society itself is built up by that. Just as no sin is purely personal, no virtue is purely personal. The more holy we act, the Congregation for Catholic Education says this, man's true dignity is found in the spirit liberated from evil, and renewed by Christ's redeeming grace. Man's true dignity is found in the spirit liberated from evil 
and renewed by Christ's redeeming grace. The realization of our dignity comes from living a moral life, a life that is one with the commandments. If you think about it, if we live according to the commandments, that is definition of a good and just society. To be honest, not to steal, be faithful, honor our elders, not to covet. All of those things are not purely religious. Any good society bases itself on the second half of a Decalogue, the commandments. So it's right there for us. Through loving one's family, friends, and neighbors, we see communion with God, and we, we more fully perceive the dignity that we have. We forget sometimes that dignity. And once we deprive someone of dignity, of the humanity, anything is possible. And that becomes the great challenge for us. Whenever we fall prey to saying things like, well, someone's an animal or someone's a monster, they might be how they act. But be very careful when we use that terminology. This is not a large step from that to something even more horrendous. Dehumanization is one of the biggest challenges that we have today. Now the word dignity itself is in the Latin word dignitas. Dignitas means worthiness, honor, excellence. So it's something which is calling us beyond ourselves. And we see that man's dignity comes first and foremost from our God-likeness, but we also see the possibility of excellence in the human person, what we're capable of. Two weeks ago, a NASA rocket that was fired four years ago traveled 200 million miles and landed on an asteroid the size of the Empire State Building and landed on this asteroid traveling 60,000 miles an hour, okay, landed on a three-point-large area and missed the bullseye by three feet. That's insane. That's incredible. But it shows what humanity is capable of, of the feats that we can be able to achieve. So humanity is not just dignified to have God-likeness, but also because we can do amazing things with our talent that God's given us. It's important to realize also we never lose the image of God as baptized believers. You will say as deacons, when you baptize a child, you will trace the cross on the child's forehead. And you will say, this child is claimed for Christ. They belong to Christ forever. Nothing takes that away from them. When they are clothed in the white garment, it's a reminder of their baptismal dignity. When we wear the owl first, the owl is a symbol, it's the garment of the baptized. It's white for a reason, to remind us of the purity that baptism brings to us. So all of these things are not just nice signs or symbols. There's a much deeper reality going on here. But just as we can do incredible things in a human level, the saints show us what incredible looks like in a religious sense of that. Think about Elizabeth Van Seton, the first born American saint. Mother Seton 
was a very wealthy, prominent woman, wealthy, prominent family, personal friends of George Washington. So this is a really strong Protestant family. Her husband, William Seton, a good man, a good Episcopalian, but against tuberculosis. And they moved to Italy, better climate, to get him convalescence, get him healed. He dies while they're in Italy, unfortunately. But the family they were with in Italy is a very faithful Catholic family. She returns to America and is so inspired by the family that she wants to become Catholic herself. But by converting, the family disowns her. So here she is now, a widow with eight children disowned by her family. But rather than being a victim, rather than being down on herself or depressed or bitter, rises above that and becomes this amazing saint who founds the Catholic school system in America, who opens up hospitals and orphanages, doing incredible, incredible things for the church and the world. The martyrs doing incredibly brave and heroic things because they knew how God called them to this, you know, to this reality. So when we act with our dignity, when we embrace our dignity, amazing things can happen with all of that. But the converse is true as well. When we act beneath our dignity through sin, it becomes very easy for us to lead others to sin. No sin is purely personal. Every sin carries a social dimension to it as well. It's important for us to live virtuously. The reality is any attempt to try to find human dignity apart from religion, apart from God, causes serious problems. The great German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, attempted to do this. Kant said that we have dignity because we're able to live under a moral law. We can make decisions and we can reason to things. And that gives humans their dignity. Make decisions, we can reason to things, our dignity comes from that. Now, can we not see the difficulty or the problem in that type of view? If our understanding of dignity is rooted in making choices, acting with our reason, what do you guys think is a problem that type of understanding? It doesn't acknowledge love. That's part of it, Doug, for sure. Absolutely, yeah, a major part of it. Love is completely out of the picture there. Exactly. What else would be a reason why that's a problem? A reason making choices are the, makes us, gives us dignity. It leaves God out of the picture altogether. Right, absolutely. And that's the whole problem, Paul, because People will say, well, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a higher being. So the problem becomes, what then do you root dignity in? But if reason, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say in, in the self, mm -hmm. rather than right. God, rather it's than totally the children of God, it be, it, it be, it's rooted in our own personal desires, our own personal wants. Mm -hmm. Isn't that pride? To try like one of the seven deadly sins. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pride in our own, our own reason, our own ability here. 
What else would be a challenge there? <clears throat> what about a person who can't reason, who can't make choices? The unborn, terminally ill, mentally handicapped? Where do they fall into the picture here? If our understanding of dignity is making the choices and having reason, what about those who can't do that? They're excluded now. And then we head towards utilitarianism. Exactly, Doug. Exactly. What works, what's going to be effective, and it becomes the whole thing Pope Francis talks about all the time. It's the whole idea of the throwaway culture. Right? If you're not young and healthy, then your dignity somehow is decreased. And we see that. The Supreme Court case a number of years ago, you know, decades ago, actually made this point. The Justice actually said that as, as people get older, their worth in society decreases. That's a real serious problem. So we see what happens when dignity is purely predicated upon reason and making choices. It becomes a really serious problem. The vulnerable are always the ones who will suffer in the end. The problem is there's really nothing we can do about this because people that are not religious don't believe this. But we should never be afraid or ashamed of mentioning Did you guys see him freeze, or is it just me? Uh, he cut you out, Doug. You're off. <laughs> Personal beliefs. Father. Different than Father, me. Yeah. You're cutting out for long periods of time every so often. Just you know, give me a second. I'll try to change the uh, connection. Please. Glad you got my back, Chris. I got you covered, Doug. <laughs> I'm writing my paper on dignity. I gotta, I gotta hear this section. This is still frozen. Yeah, he's. I'll take it from here, guys. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's keep this better. Sorry about that, guys. I apologize. No is that better or is that any? So far, so good. Okay, if it happens again, let me know. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Uh, <laughs> we're over, over in the school. I guess the Wi-Fi is not too great over here. So sorry about that. All right. So to kind of keep going here. So the, the whole the whole problem with this is those that are handicapped, those that are vulnerable, are the ones who are most likely have their dignity suppressed or not be realized by the culture around us. And that becomes one of the great challenges we're dealing with in all of this. Okay? All right. Now, again, I was saying before also was we shouldn't be afraid of mentioning our religious understanding of things when it comes to how we view the world. Why is our view have to be suppressed when a secular view or an atheist view or agnostic's view is how we have to approach things. That's nonsense. Our religious understanding informs us. And we shouldn't be afraid or ashamed 
to mention that when it comes to how we view our life and how we view the world around us. Our religion is not a Sunday thing. Every part of us is how we should live our life as believers. Okay? Questions or comments? Father, don't we all do that, though? I mean, to separate us, the church, from other people. I mean, we in the church do it, too. I mean, you just look at the death penalty and the way you hear many people talking today about, well, they committed such a violent, horrible crime. Mm-hmm. That's that's not God's judgment. That's our own judgment. And that's Absolutely. really strong in a lot of ways, even yeah. harsh criminal punishments. Right, right. No, we do. And that becomes, and that's one of the reasons why we have to be so careful about how we how we view things like capital punishment. I think Pope Francis's own understanding of that, you know, in terms of being very, very strong about, um, you know, being uh, how his opposition to it, I think is rooted in that reality of do we really have the right, are we the, are we the arbiters of life and death, right? And if we deprive people of their dignity because of what they've done wrong or whatever the case may be. So these become real serious issues. You know, the criminals, those that are in um, end of life situations. Again, those in the margins are the ones most vulnerable to society's indifference. And that becomes one of the great challenges of our age that we're facing, I think, at this time, for sure. All right. Don't forget to Yeah, It also has to do with people who are getting older. And, and, you know, like priests, they make them retire early when they still have a tremendous amount to give back and, and, and teach. Mm-hmm. And the same thing in, in business, too. They, the older the people get, they figure they're, they're not worth as much. Exactly. Is, yeah, which is the opposite. They're worth more because they have life experience. Yeah. They're viewed as a liability. They're viewed as, you know, behind the times. And, we you know, it's, it's a very American problem. In some cultures, the old people, the elderly are revered. In China, they they revere. Yeah, that's right. Whereas here in America, if you're not young and healthy, your worth and your ability to contribute to society is viewed as having been diminished because you were not at the top of your game when um, when you were involved in in, you know in your 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 work because you got older. Something else. It's an unfortunate reality that we kind of face right now, Um, and it's endemic across across the spectrum, you know for sure. But for the Archdiocese of New York, at least. We're facing a really interesting issue because the average age of a priest right now in New York is 65. So we're going to need those older guys to stick around for a little while longer to help us younger guys out as we take over as pastors younger and younger and need their wisdom and their priestly example to help us to be able to become the kind of priests that all of us want to become in the end. But uh, it's kind of a sea change how we view things. Um, because of that. So good point, James, for sure. Definitely. But, you know, for yourselves, you know, as men who can become deacons, please got a couple of years, one of your main areas of ministry will be in the hospital. Probably already is for some of you in, you know, chaplaincy or working in the hospital for sure. So looking at some of the issues of medical ethics, it's going to be really important for us to get a handle on this for yourselves. One of the, one of the main issues here is a whole idea of useful is sorry useful dominion over human life. We do not have absolute dominion. We have useful dominion over human life, which means we're called to responsible stewardship 
of our life and other lives as well. You're called to take care of life, defend it, and protect it. But we do not have absolute dominion. Now, there are those who say we do, but that isn't the case. Why not? Well, because if we had absolute dominion, we could have created ourselves. But we didn't. We owe our existence to somebody else. So our life itself doesn't come from us. Right? We didn't create ourselves. Also, if it was absolute, in my body, I could be short on Monday and tall on Tuesday. I would think it, and it would happen. But I can't do that. So I'm limited in what my choices are here. So some intervention could do that. But at the end of the day, we don't have any kind of absolute dominion. We are a tenant of our body, not a landlord. We have now, eventually, we're going to get back to God. So we're tenants. We rent, we don't own, in a certain sense. So important for us to have a sense of that as we move forward. And this ties into the whole issue of the transgender movement. Right? This whole issue right now of these people that are claiming they're trapped in the wrong body and they're different kind of gender. It's a real serious problem. Now, first and foremost, though, I can't imagine how it must feel to think you're trapped in somebody else's body. That's got to be horrendous. And a lot of them think they are. And it's a real serious issue. How to minister to them properly becomes a great struggle and you know again it's, it's one of the real issues they're facing right now and the problem is it's affecting people younger and younger a mother recently at a town hall asked a candidate for president if he would support her eight-year-old son's decision or eight-year-old daughter's decision to live as a boy and the candidate said, if that makes them happy, if that fulfills them, more power to them. Good for them. That's insane. I mean, at eight years old, who the heck has any, any understanding of this? At eight, it's crazy. So where does this come from? Well, it's all kinds of issues. Gender dysphoria, body dysphoria are categorized as actually psychological issues. Think about it this way. A good example of body dysphoria is somebody anorexic. Person who's anorexic believes they're overweight, they're fat, but really they're, they're thin as a rail, unhealthily so. But in their mind, they think they're, they're fat. You try to help that person, give them counseling, therapy, get it out of that mindset. But for somebody who thinks they're trapped in different gender, then we affirm. Well, what's the difference? Both people think they're trapped in the wrong kind of body. Both of them are struggling with a really serious psychological malady here. But one we affirm, and one we get help. So it's a real issue. The American College of Pediatrics was recently said in a study that 
to, to affirm a child in their gender dysphoria is a form of child abuse. Because we know from studies, when a child believes they have in a different gender and they get help, between 80 and 95% of the time, the child goes to therapy and enters adulthood believing that the gender they actually are. When they get help, the problem is now in some areas of the country, if you do this, if you mention this, or try and teach this, you can be sued for discrimination. There is no problem, by the way, with a therapist saying to a kid who thinks they're a girl or a boy and they're not you know, different gender, you're fine, you're good, I want to affirm you in that. Well, that's given legal right and protection. And by the way, guys, parents even now face this problem. Because the reality is gender hormonal blocking drugs can be given as young as 14 years old. Surgical transition can happen as young as 16 years old. Now the guidance counselor in the school believes that the home environment of that child is not supportive of them, is not open enough to them. CPS can get involved in that family. To try and speak out against this insanity, you have serious issues. Now, one example of this that I heard about a case that I heard recently. The case was a young man, young man was had two sisters. The mother of, the, of these three kids had had a very rough um, relationship with a guy years ago, abusive relationship, and she had a real hard time showing affection to a man because of her past. So her daughters, she would hug them and kiss them, any mom would do for her kids. But her son, kind of distant, kind of like, you know, hands off, no affection really. So little boy sees his mother giving affection to his sisters. And he reasons to himself, if I'm a girl, mom will show me the affection and love my sisters get. And he decides, as a young kid, you know what, mom, I think that I'm a girl. And the mom is like, what are you talking about? Welcome to therapy, both her and him. And they realize the root of this was the affection he desired wasn't being given to him. He got help, she got help, and the problem was resolved. But that mother said, you know what, I think you're a girl. No problem. I affirm you in that. I embrace that. That's wonderful. Go ahead. That's great. No problem at all. That kid would have been in this path of um, of real pain and suffering. Because studies tell us now that 10 to 15 years after a surgical transition, the person regrets the transition happening in a variety, in a wide variety now of cases. The rate of suicide is five times higher for after surgical transition people than a similar group that has not transitioned. So suicides, mental health issues, depression, all kinds of problems arise here. And we're gonna see issues even more in this area because now we see a pitch to have girls 
competing in boys' sports and vice versa. Well, I mean, the reality is, in teenage years, boys and girls develop differently. And you're going to have major problems in competitions, in track and field, in different kind of sporting events. But even more than that, locker rooms, bathrooms, all kinds of really sensitive issues. And the transgender movement has completely hijacked this now. And if you speak out anything against it, you're canceled, you're called a homophobe, a transphobe, whatever they can. So it makes it impossible for you to debate people because they don't want to hear you. And the name calling is the biggest thing. So they call you, you know, a sexist, you're a homophobe, whatever. And they shut down any kind of debate or communication over this. And this becomes the root of a lot of problems. You know, after, yeah, go ahead, John, yeah, sorry. Uh, that's okay. What's the, um, what's the parallels between transgenderism and homosexuality, then, and what you're talking about? I mean, is it 100% parallel? or Meaning what, John, in terms of parallel? What's well, you're talking about transgenderism. What about, is it the same thing as, you haven't said anything about homosexuality. Is it the same thing? Are you equating those two things no. the same? No, I'm not, because there is, there is a bit of a distinction here, I think, John. And that a person who is gay, who is you know who is a male homosexual, simply believes that they are attracted to men. They're a man who knows they're a man, who embraces their masculinity in some sense, but simply is attracted to men. They don't seek. They don't because a person who's transgender believes they're trapped in somebody else's body. It's a man thinking I'm trapped in a woman's body. Or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. First of all, my question of all of this: How do you know what, that, what that's like? How would a man know what a woman's psychological, emotional makeup is? You're trapped in her body. What does it even mean? So that, you know, that's an issue. But a homosexual understands that they are how they are, and they're attracted to the same sex, and that's just the way that it is. But there's no sense in their mind of being trapped in somebody else's body. So it's, it's yeah, it's money. Paul, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Not at all. Go ahead. But, but but there is a parallel that I that I that I do see, in that I think we agree that there's a psychological component to the transgender transgenderism, perhaps a, some type of a psychological disorder, which agreed because it's taught from the earliest days of childhood now in grammar school as a, a different normal that it must not only be accepted, it it can't be corrected you should not try to as in fact it should be celebrated and embraced but there's a parallel there with homosexuality as well because the church is taught in its catechism that it's a disordered state just as transgenderism would be a disordered state mm-hmm. yet with with homosexuality it's different as well i mean we've even been told by certain priests that Catechism shouldn't say what it says, that the catechism really is, is, is incorrect. It's not disordered. It's actually differently ordered, which means now it's no longer, well, you know what I'm driving at, Father. I do. This is a, this is a society, all of this, I think, comes into a big bubble of societal issues, which are, which are focused on sexuality in one way, shape, or form, and there seems... And it's just me personally with no intelligence about what I'm talking about, but it just seems that there's something very malevolent about all of it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, not, well, not on the part of the person, but no, no, sure, of course, yeah. of course. Well, the catechism is teaching me about all of it when it comes to homosexuality and calling it mentally disordered. The reality is, any kind of sexual perversion of any of any sort is itself disordered. I think part of the criticism is that we focus a lot on homosexuality as disorder, and it is. But the reality is, so is a man lusting after if not his wife, you know. So is a person who is looking to hook up with somebody for the thrill of, of, of a conquest sexually. All of that is disordered. But the reality is for homosexuality, it's intrinsic in the sense that there's something in the person themselves that causes a lot of issues. And also homosexuality is the issue of, there's two kinds of, of, of situations here. There's transitory and deep-seated. Now, a person who's transitory means that they were at some point in their teenage years, let's say a person was 14 years old, and he begins high school, kind of a scrawny kid, no real athletic ability, and he sees the star quarterback, who's a senior, good-looking guy, all the girls love him, popular, he got everything going for him. And the kid begins to idolize that older senior quarterback in the school. And at that age... Hormones, a lot of confusion also. He may think to himself, I am sexually attracted to the quarterback. He's not. There's been an emotional emotional attraction there, which is being confused as sexual attraction. And if that's not addressed properly, if it's if it's if it's affirmed, he's good, this is fine, you're good, you're no problem, it's right, you're wrong, you are, celebrate that. Well, the kid is going to now embrace identity of being homosexual and it's going to only be a problem for him as he gets older it's also a case let's say of a kid at 11 years old and is exposed in some sense to gay pornography and is in some way uh simulated by that and thinks i must be gay and again if it's not addressed properly if parents affirm it and celebrate it and and embrace it then the kid is going to be completely given the wrong kind of formation here. But that also may happen as the kid gets older into adulthood, he may realize the, the, the difficulty here or the malformation here and can become a healthy heterosexual living as he actually is. That's different than a deep-seated homosexuality. In a deep-seated situation, Everything about this guy or this gal, they know who they are, everything about them is defined by their sexual identity. And that it kind of blinds them to any kind of other type of appropriate way of living. And now society, of course, celebrates it. Where more and more ads you see on TV now, of course, have a gay couple involved, right? The Hallmark Channel, their great Christmas movie is coming up right now actually starting up, have promised to have plots with same-sex couples to affirm their own life and their own family style. So it becomes more and more accepted. Every movie you see now has to have like some gay characters, like a given, right? So we're accepting this more and more. And the whole same-sex marriage you know, thing became an issue. Yeah, John, go ahead. You're, 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 you're muted. 
Okay, sorry. Yes, with, yes. with homosexuals, transsexuals, and, and their prodigy, how do we carve out the dignity that remains in these people? Because they all have dignity. We never lose the, the complete loss of dignity. How do we how do we retrieve their dignity and use that to hang on to them as people and 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 that people we just don't we don't want to make fun of them or, of or no, 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 see, uh, that type of thing. How do we how do we, how do you do that? Yeah, yeah. So I think the first thing you have to do is help to reorder the conversation in the sense of a lot of them view their identity purely in terms of their sexuality. Being gay, being a lesbian, that's who they are in their mind. Everything about them is that type of thing. For us, you have to remind them that no, your identity is a beloved son or daughter of God. The dignity, worth, loved by God, that's who you are. Our sexual preferences, our sexual identity doesn't define us. It's part of us doesn't define us and whenever we deal with any kind of a difficult situation we're treating a person not a problem and that's important for us i mentioned right, briefly right. a couple weeks ago i had a case with the parish you know it was my first parish a couple came to me a gay couple came to me where the one of the guys was a mass every week his partner not into the faith at all was dying of cancer and they came to me every week, about two or three months, kind of talk and just be, you know, be present to them. And look, they know what the church teaches. The guy came to mass every week, never went to communion, but was just there. And talking with them and treating them with dignity and treating them with respect, they understood what the church, what the church taught. But it wasn't the place for me to say to them, well, now both of you guys living in saying this is wrong now. Of course not. What I had were two guys who love one another, and one of them was dying. So you meet you, where they're at. And that becomes a way of, of having a conversation by simply treating them with the love and respect you treat anybody else. And that's the way of going forward. Now, what happened so is what I, what I get from what you're saying is that. The amount, the sexuality of the person or the couple, is not the issue. The issue is their their humanity and and their their faith and and so forth that you extract as their residual dignity as people. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Because their dignity is 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 intrinsic to the person, and our sexuality, our faults, our failings, none of that removes that dignity from us. Right. That's got to be a starting point. We have to start with the dignity of the person. And if we do that, a conversation can happen. And they expect us to condemn them. They expect us to berate mm-hmm. them, to judge them. And when you don't do that, the, the shock on their face in a positive way is clear. Now, that doesn't mean we affirm everything. So they got married civilly, this couple, before before marriage was, uh, was defined by the Supreme Court. When New York had gay marriage at that point. And they came to me and asked me to bless their rings. That I couldn't do. I said, guys, I'm sorry. You know, I can't, I can't, that's, that's like part of a sacrament. But because I was kind to them before and showed them respect and heard them out and talked with them, it made that easier for them to, to accept. 
because they realized it wasn't coming from a place of my hating them or condemning them or judging them. It came from a place instead of my saying, listen, guys, like this, there's certain things I, I can't do here. But if we meet them where they're at and treat them with love and respect, and the church has taught this, and Pope Francis, to his credit, on a variety of levels, has tried to, in some way, help us to have a different way of approaching this issue. A lot of them believe the church hates them. I do a lot of youth, youth events, high school events, and it often happens, the high school students in Q&A will ask the question and frame it this way. They'll ask, why does the church hate gay people? Because in their mindset, as teenagers, they're taught or they've picked up or they've come to believe that the church hates people that are gay. And that's a real problem on our part. We've been a failure there in some sense. But not accept and embrace the humanity of who they are. That does not mean we affirm a lifestyle or we affirm, you know, their their marriage or whatever the case may be. But it means comment about yeah, John. any comment about the uh, Pope Francis's recent comments yeah. about a civil union for for uh, gays. So the Vatican came out today. And the Vatican came out today and clarified his remarks. Uh-huh. The word for union, apparently that was translated, is the word convivencia. And convivencia can mean union, but it can mean coexistence also. And what they claim is that what the Pope was saying there was a coexistence with the family of origin, not a family he's created with his, his gay spouse. That, I think, is what the Pope was trying to talk about. So there's a whole different way of looking at it then. Because what the Pope is saying here is a lot of families do, in fact, disown a child or throw them out of the house or treat them as a second-class citizen because they're gay. And the Pope is saying, we can't do that. He's right, by the way, in saying that. That seems to be what the Pope is trying to communicate in what he said. Because the Pope himself was very strong on the issue of gay marriage, speaking out against it. And the church in 2003 published a whole document from the, from the uh, CDF about gay marriage or civil unions and why civil unions are not acceptable. Now, what they want actually is you know, like hospital visitation rights, inheritance rights, all of those things. And my understanding is if you go to an attorney and talk to them about all these things, you can be able to organize that. If somebody's in the hospital, you can get visitation rights. If they die, you can get inheritance coming to the person whom you're with. Right. So there is a way of doing this without trans, without changing an entire element of society. That, to me, becomes the issue. Yeah, go ahead. Whether that is true in this country, but in Latin America, that will not happen. Okay. Almost when it comes to inheritance and and the rights uh, uh, of an ill person, it's not the same as it is here, where you could just get a power of attorney and transfer it oh, over. Okay. Uh, as it is in, in, in my country, in the Dominican Republic, my parents' inheritance will come straight to the children, not Ooh. to what my father says. Oh, wow. Okay, interesting. All right, fair enough, fair point. Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. <clears throat> but even still, though, it doesn't change the reality of, you know, we, we can't start playing games with with sacraments, because to me, the civil union issue is like a Trojan horse. Yeah, civil unions today, and then it's marriage tomorrow. 
And as he comes, I think that we're opening up a real can of worms. We can start doing this. And we're already seeing it happen in different areas, aren't we? Without the aggression or... Um, yeah, I'm concerned because I'm just, I, did, I didn't hear that, right? But of mm-hmm. course I heard when the Pope talked about civil unions. Mm-hmm. So my question is, are you aware of any major news outlet that Pope that talked today about the clarification? No. Neither are I. I mean, this is a major problem for us too. Yeah. Well, you know, part we of were, the- We were waiting for a clarification though, because we yeah. thought it would probably come, but I yeah. didn't hear anything today. And, you know, it's also important for us to realize in terms of even on a, on a doctrinal level here, you know, a papal statement to, it or to a reporter of a magazine interview or a book interview has no doctrinal weight. It's simply a pope speaking as a Catholic bishop of Rome, which is obviously an important position to have. But, I mean, he's not speaking here ex cathedra. He's not speaking here in a doctrinal or automatic way. He's simply offering his opinion or his, his sense of this. This is why, gents, previous popes have always used a prepared text whenever they've addressed issues that are, that are challenging or difficult. Because when a pope misspeaks, whatever the case may be, or off the cuff, you're really um, you're really opening up a can of worms. Chris sent us a, a link to Reuters with uh, clarification here. So maybe it'd be the after class today. Thank you, Chris, for sending that. Um, yeah, so that becomes, you know, part of the challenge. And Pope Francis, his kind of his style is that way. Where he likes to think off the cuff and kind of like, you know, give an opinion on, on an airplane or whatever the case is. So, but the problem is all of us occasionally misspeak. When the Pope misspeaks, it makes headlines. You know, as a homilist, I can tell you guys, I, I mean, when we homilies, I think about what I'm going to say, and then I say it in the homily for a weekday. I always say, on average, any given year, by accident, I say heresy every six times. By accident, we say homily. But when I say it, nobody cares. Oh my, I'm, I'm, I'm a priest. But when the Pope says it, it makes headlines. And that becomes part of the challenge. An example of this, to give you a sense of it, when John Paul II wrote Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life, it's encyclical, which is a great encyclical on on life and life issues the pope wrote in that we're going to write in that encyclical that women who've had abortions can take comfort that their child now sees the vision of god in heaven which i think is probably is probably true but the problem is if i said follow you you can't say that because you don't know for sure and if you say that then it becomes like a doctrinal thing in the encyclical so please omit that and he did so precision, precision, so theology is nuanced, man. It's a science. Like any science, it's nuanced, it's precise, and broad strokes always cause problems. If we're not precise in our language, we end up making a mistake somewhere, and it's going to cause confusion. Really important for us to have a sense of um, when we're speaking about these things, of being very careful in our language. And you know, we worried about the whole issue of was Obergefell, the same-sex marriage decision, going to open up a can of worms in terms of other relationships. And we're already seeing it happening. But a year ago, there was that case of um, the woman from California, Katie Hill, congresswoman, who was uh, had to resign because she had a relationship with her staffer and her husband. Right. And they coined the term thruple, whatever that 
allegedly supposed to mean. And within a matter of about a week after this happened, they were being defended. Well, that's their that's their lifestyle, that's their preference, that's their way of, of, of love. And, you know, it's not going to be long before these cases get to a court because they're going to see what's going to happen. And this is my personal opinion here. The church should get out of the marriage business right now. Do, do marriages as, as sacraments, but get out of it civilly. We're, gonna go, we're opening up a real can of worms here, fellas. If a gay couple comes to the parish and wants me to marry them, and I don't, they're the constitutional right they have to get married. And if I tell them no, I am violating the constitutional right. Now, that hasn't happened yet, thank God. But in Europe, what they do is a judge or magistrate, whatever the case is, marries the couple civilly in law, and then in church the next day, they get married by the priest or the deacon. And I wonder if maybe looking at the signs of the times, reading the tea leaves here a little bit, think maybe it's best for us to go the same route. Again, personal opinion, not church teaching or anything. But I worry about that because we have no leg to stand on when it comes to some of these these difficult issues. And I'm not sure how this is going to kind of play out um, in the long run. So the whole transgender thing, you know, it's you know, it's going to become an issue because. Locker rooms, bathrooms, sporting events. We're, we're opening up a real can of worms that I wonder how we're going to ever be able to get beyond this uh, kind of thing. So we'll see what happens as um, time goes on here. Okay, Good, good discussion about that. It was important to have these kinds of uh, conversations. It's good. Now, the reality of getting back to the idea of the body, it, you know, the reality is the greatest proof I think we have for the existence of God is what Thomas Aquinas called the argument from contingency, meaning everything comes from something. You and I have inherited our body. Our parents gave birth to us, and here we are. So we don't have an absolute dominion over it. Useful? Yes. Absolute? No. But the reality is everything comes from something. Nothing simply created itself other than God. God is that which owes its existence to nothing else. So it's important for us to realize our dependence. That we are created by God and going back to God. We are stewards. We are stewards, not owners of the body we have been given. Important for us to understand that. Now, medical ethics. Ed mentioned three weeks ago some principles. What I want to do tonight is do a deeper dive into those principles and get a better sense of what we're talking about. So the first, I mentioned this, was the ordinary versus extraordinary distinction. This is an old and well-accepted distinction. Ordinary and extraordinary. Well, Pius XII refined it and brought it more into prominence the talks he gave in the Pope. Not phrased the same way. But we're speaking about a moral distinction. Apparently, in medicine, the ordinary refers to that which is tested, proven, and the outcome is known. The extraordinary in medicine is that which is unproven or unknown. But in moral theology, that's not what we're talking about. 
There's a, a, very, a, big, a big difference here. And the problem is what is ordinary for somebody is extraordinary for someone else. People have asked the church to give a list of what's, what's, or, what's ordinary, what's extraordinary. And we can't do that because each case is distinct. So we ask ourselves three questions. We're looking at the ordinary, extraordinary distinction. The first question we ask ourselves to calculate this, the first question is, does this benefit the patient? Now, will it cure them? Will it benefit them? So does this benefit the patient? Not cure, but get some reasonable hope of benefit to the person who is the patient. The second question, does it involve serious danger of death? Does the procedure, the medication, whatever it is, involve serious danger of death? Third calculation, is the treatment excessive? Will it result in excessive pain, hardship, burden, repugnance? Is the treatment excessive? Will it result in excessive pain, hardship, burden, or repugnance. And that becomes the three main ways which we look at these issues and then apply them on a case-by-case -case basis. If there is a reasonable hope of benefit, a small danger of death, and the treatment is not excessive, then it is ordinary. Okay? If there is Reasonable hope benefit, small danger of death, not excessive, that is ordinary. What is ordinary is obligatory. It must be done. What is extraordinary is optional, up to the discretion of the patient and their loved ones. Ordinary, obligatory, extraordinary, optional, up to the patient and the loved one. Now, the confusion arises when people see what is ordinary or extraordinary in the reverse. They don't get it. There's not a clear picture of this. So two cases, they illustrate my point. First case, if a girl of 16 years, healthy girl at 16 years old, no other medical issues, gets pneumonia. Okay? There's an aggressive treatment of antibiotics given to her. They give they help her out. It's okay. Three questions about this. Antibiotics. Is it a benefit to young girl? Obviously, yes, it is. Is there a danger of death with the antibiotics? Chances are she's allergic. No. Third question is, is it excessive? Well, no, because she's 16 years old. Can he heal her? Can he cure her? So in this case, it's obligatory because it is not extraordinary, but it is an ordinary way of looking at it. For her to reject this treatment is a form of suicide, frankly. And for somebody to deny her this treatment is homicide. Because this would, this would cure her. There's no reason for her to not be given antibiotics to help cure her of this disease. Okay. Other case, same situation, but in this case, 
The man is 85 years old with cancer in the hospital and gets pneumonia. We ask ourselves the same question. Would aggressive antibiotic treatment be necessary here? Well, let's look at it. Would it give him a reasonable hope of benefit? Maybe, maybe not. He's 85, he's very sick, already in the hospital, but help? Maybe, or maybe not. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a harder question. Would it cause danger of death? Well, no, well, the age provides some concern there. Three, is it excessive? Maybe, but again, in this case, with the age and the infirmity factors, what was ordinary for the girl at 16 is extraordinary for the guy at 85. Now, simply being a short, you, 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 I don't do it. But it means that there is no longer not an obligation to do it. So it's a whole different way of looking at it there. So the condition of the patient, and again, it's a case-by-case basis when it comes to ordinary and extraordinary. And that becomes the calculus for looking at each one of these cases and we look at it. Now, what is always ordinary? There are five things that are always ordinary. Every person with their dignity is entitled to five things. Food, water, bed rest, hygiene, room temperature. Food, water, bed rest, hygiene, room temperature. If any one of those things is withdrawn for different lengths of time, the person will get very sick or will die. So those five things are required because the person simply is human. And it's very important for us to get a sense of these five things that every person in the hospital, in the nursing home, whatever it is, is given these benefits um, because they're human, frankly. Very important for us to have that sense of things, all right? Questions, comments? So my wife's not turning the heat on yet is... In fact, that, is, that is against your humanity, Chris. That is against humanity. Tell her that. Tell her after Tell class. For in class, it is against humanity that you're freezing in your own house. It's wrong, yeah, man. It's wrong, on. I don't put it on. <laughs> so... Um, so uh, you're probably going to get to this, but so when we, we talk about abortion, then it, it, it's eliminated through this immediately, through the ordinary or extraordinary test. Oh, there isn't even, there's even a question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I know, lot. but I, I, you know, you often get you know, hit with the, the medical significance of it, the fact, you know, all the, all the reasons why, which we don't have to belabor uh, abortion, but I mean, this just eliminates it, shuts it down right there. There's just, there's no way that. Well, you know, the biggest issue right now that we're facing, we'll get to this later on, we'll get to this a couple of classes from now, but kind of right to tonight, Chris, is Explain a whole thing. Explain room, okay. excuse me. Yeah, okay, John. Explain room temperature to me. Well, I mean, I mean that you're not putting a person in a room that's, that's 30 degrees and the person's going to freeze to death. That's kind of what we're talking about. It's a reasonable temperature, yes. you know, that's what, yeah, I mean, that's, where, did, where does that happen? Well, it could happen in a case where a person is in a, let's say a person's in a, in a home and the, and the, and the, and the, and the person is unable to, is he, is he, he can't, can't move, whatever. 
and the nurse or whoever leaves window open, let's say, and it's you know ten degrees outside. That's an error, though. That's not done on purpose. That's right. But no, but, no. but but it's not a matter of error or being or being or being uh, or being an accident. The point is, you're entitled to be living in a condition which well, is not going to. Yeah. Okay, know, it's sort of far fetched. So, uh, I, John, I, well, I, it is, but it's not. But it's but it's, it's kind of classical <laughs> stuff, John. So it comes from just that happened years ago. Maybe, maybe in the in the darkest Congo or someplace John, like John, that. Right. that but, you know. John, John, I I disagree with yeah, you. I, 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 I think we as humans owe food, water, bed, hygiene, room temperature to people. Think of people that are in housing. I, have- I agree a hundred percent, but I just don't see where that's happening in a hospital or a, or a nursing yeah, home. Not in any the, kind of care at all in the I mean, in the United States, John. I would say you're probably right. I would say yeah. the broad world where that's not so- now in the darkest Congo. But yes, not, maybe, no, maybe. I would. I would I'll point to parts of matter whether it's happening or not. It's a matter of what is the principle. Mm-hmm. What is what is entitled. That's more than anything. Really, John, it is, it is far-fetched. It wouldn't happen in the U.S., you're right. But it's a matter of what is the person entitled to not what is going to happen most times. Yeah, that would be I mean, what the principle is. But that's a good point. But, Chris, your point, though, about the whole abortion issue, you know, again, one of the arguments you're going to hear a lot is that, you know, cases of um, partial birth abortion, late-term abortion, are cases where the, the mother's life is in danger, but... There are so many ways that there's a cesarean section, other medical intervention, that I've heard doctors say there is not, there is never a medical reason for late-term abortion. I'm not a doctor, I'm not a gynecologist, I don't know the science of that, but I've heard uh, gynecologists, obstetricians say there's nothing in their in their experience where at that late stage, it is, there is a not a better way of handling a situation rather than. Um, the the barbaric practice of dismemberment and aspiration. Okay. So, yeah. Well, we'll get to that in a couple of classes from now, kind of the whole abortion issue, look at some of the arguments for abortion, and then we can answer those, those arguments when they come to us. So that's coming down the pipe. But a good point mentioning that now. It's important for us also to realize that we do not equate ordinary with natural and extraordinary with artificial. Almost everything in a hospital is in some sense artificial. Ventilators, medications, a lot of that. So there can be a bit of a sense of like, well, if it's artificial, it's extraordinary. Well, not necessarily. Again, a lot of things that are used in hospitals now are going to be are going to be artificial in nature. But artificial does not mean that it is therefore extraordinary. And the same benefit of that what is natural doesn't always mean it's going to be ordinary. So it's not the distinction here, important for us not to get caught up in those semantics when it comes to artificial, extraordinary, or natural, and ordinary. So good for us to have a sense of the distinction which is there. The reality, fellas, is there's also not a reason for us to prolong someone's dying. If the person's dying, we can give them medication to make them comfortable, good palliative care, all of that. You know, a friend of mine has worked a lot of years in a hospice, visiting nurse kind of thing. And she was saying the struggle she has when we pray in church, the natural death or, you know, the whole idea of, of avoiding euthanasia. And she was saying to me, no, I don't understand, Father. People are suffering. 
and why do we not help them to not suffer? And I'm like, um, that's not what we teach, actually. We, we want to help people to be given less pain and given painkillers and all kinds of sedatives and things to help them to overcome pain. So we don't have to do things to prolong the act of dying. We are obliged, we're not obliged to prolong the dying process. We can help a person, we can be good to them, but it's important for us to realize that even the person who is at that point of life where they are very sick or terminally ill, you know, in hospice care, their dignity remains. Quality of life does not determine dignity. In fact, the opposite should be what we look at, where dignity should determine quality of life in terms of because a person has dignity and worth and value, how they're treated in a hospice, how they're treated in a hospital, should be predicated upon the dignity they have as humans. When we begin to say, well, person sick or ill, let's not give them the help they need, the care they need, it's awful. When I worked at Calvary Hospital for a year, when I was in the seminary, I'll tell you, fellas, if every hospice was like Calvary, these debates would not be happening. Because the palliative care, the, the incredible care, those patients were given for no cost, that shows you what true palliative care looks like. Rosary Hill up in Hawthorne. I mean, there are places that are that doing enormous work. So it really is a way for us to really, there, there is a way for us to approach palliative care in a human, dignified way that respects the person's dignity even at the end of their life. Now, Calvary, they would give, they'd have a barber shop at Calvary. Now, most cancer patients that were there lost all their hair. Maybe they had like one wisp of hair left. They'd have a person go get a haircut if they wanted to. A little snip, not be enough. Just to give them some sense of normalcy and respect. If they wanted to have a hamburger or something different for lunch that day, they'd make it for them. It just, it's, it's a small thing. But it shows that even now, at this point in your life, there's respect and care given to you because you are human. And dignity is there, regardless of the condition of the person's health. And this, again, goes back to Pope Francis, the whole idea of throwaway culture, right? When you're not healthy and well and young, your worth, therefore, is diminished. And that becomes a major problem that we're facing across the board in American culture today. You know, all of this goes back to the whole idea of the fifth commandment, right? Thou shalt not kill. And how important for us to always remember that. Now, the commandment itself simply is opposed to the killing of the innocent. You have an obligation to take care of life, health, and bodily integrity. It is essential for us to be so concerned that we're being completely uh, careful when it comes to people's life and all these things and we hear today a lot about what they call mercy killing and the reality is the same folks that brought us the words pro-choice have brought us the words mercy killing because the reality is words are tactics prior to roe versus Wade, abortion advocates understood and even wrote about the fact now, for them to succeed, they must separate the reality of killing from the reality 
of abortion. The words changed. Words changed first. Society changes next. Verbal engineering precedes societal engineering. If you control language, you control the universe, how we speak about these things. So now the word killing, emergency killing, doesn't sound too good. So instead we have the terminology of a right to die. Because we all like rights talk, don't we? Now, the curious statement, because a, a right is a claim we have on something. It's a weird kind of statement to say there. So if they ask ourselves, well, the whole question of rights, where do rights come from? We hear it all the time, right to, right to life, right to bear arms, right to free speech, right, all kinds of rights. So the ultimate source of human rights is not found in the mere will of the person or the state or public powers, but in God. Our rights come from God. And rights are meant to promote justice in a society. When people's rights are respected, people's dignity is protected. And to speak about rights means to speak about responsibility. There's duty. Rights have a duty attached to them. And the rights are not absolute. No right, even life, is absolute. Every right has the corresponding obligation or duty attached to it. So, for example, you have the right to property, private property. But I have a duty then, a responsibility, to put some of the material goods that I have aside to help the less fortunate. I have a right, a duty corresponds to it. No right is autonomous by itself. Okay? Right to life. All of us have that. Principal right, right to life. But that means I must respect right to the life of other people as well. So a right has a corresponding obligation. The right to bodily autonomy, the body of my own body, I can use it as I want, but I can't use the body for committing a crime. If I do, I'll go, go to jail. Or have bodily autonomy as a way of infringing on someone's right to life. Because women will use this claim a lot. That her bodily autonomy means the unborn child in her womb, she can terminate the pregnancy. Well, wait a minute now. Your right to a bodily autonomy doesn't give you the right to kill someone. So we have a right, a there's a corresponding duty or obligation that attends to that right. They are not absolutes in themselves. Every right has a corresponding duty or obligation that is attached to that right. It's important for us to understand that. John 23rd, the Parchment Terrace is a cyclical, writes this. I'll read it to you guys, I don't have to copy it down or anything. He writes this, for every fundamental human right draws its indestructible moral force from the natural law, which in granting it imposes a corresponding obligation. Those therefore, claim their own rights yet altogether forget or neglect to carry out their respective duties are people who build with one hand and destroy with the other. If we have rights, 
You have to understand the obligation that goes along with those rights. Does everyone get that? That, that confusing? Is that clear? It's an important point because it's not how we view things in society today. But rights talk must correspond to responsibility with the rights we've been given. We're not by themselves absolutes. Okay? All right. Now, we say that rights are universal, they're inviolable, and they're inalienable. Universal, inviolable, and inalienable. Universal, because they are present in all human beings without exception of time or place or subject. Because they are, they are present in all human beings without exception of time, place, or subject. Okay? They are inviolable. That we must protect and ensure the rights of everybody every time, place, or subject. We have a right to ensure duty. We have duty to respect the rights of all people. And they're inalienable because no one can legitimately deprive another person, whoever they may be, of these rights since this would do violence to human nature. They're inalienable because no one can legitimately deprive somebody else, whoever they may be, of these rights since they would do violence to their nature. Think about Thomas Jefferson, right? The inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They're inalienable because no one has the right to deprive you of any one of those three things. If they do, they're doing violence to the human person. So universal, inviolable, and inalienable. For us to get that sense. The problem today, though, is that for the most part, rights are viewed as autonomous. I have a right. I do what I want. No obligation or responsibility attends to that. I simply do what I want to do. And that becomes a great problem because we then become arbiters of what is right and what is wrong. And when humans begin to create rights for themselves, what basis then is there but will the power? Majority rule, powerful, oppress the weak. So when we view things as coming from God, we see it properly. All right. Questions, comments? Father? Yeah. When you're talking about language, I think that's something that they've been sort of implanting in us is this thing called your own personal truth. Mm -hmm. Like, what's yeah. your truth? Or that's your truth, right? Right, right. Well, John, your point there is the whole issue of what's called relativism, right? Relativism, the, the, you know, the biggest word relativism, two words, relativism, for you. That's right for you. That's wrong for you. That's good for you, but not for me. So all of a sudden, now there is no underpinning foundation when it comes to objective reality, objective truth. We deny that. But the reality is even relativists, it's an untenable position. And here's why I say that. Ask a relativist, do you believe that relativism applies in all cases, in all circumstances. 
And they'll say probably, yes, I do. Wait a minute. Everything applies in all cases, in all circumstances, everywhere. That is an absolute statement. So actually, you believe in absolutes. You're saying relativism applies everywhere. Well, that's absolute, isn't it? If they say, well, no, it doesn't apply everywhere, then it means that they believe that there are certain exceptions to that. But their own, their own belief system falls. If I break into their house and steal their TV, and I say, well, you know, for me, my truth is that I have a right to your TV. You think I don't? That's true for you, not for me. So in practice, it doesn't hold any kind of weight. It's ridiculous. What it's meant to do is excuse bad behavior. That you know is wrong, but if it's relative, it's not, you know, no right, no right or wrong, then, you know, it's okay. And the fact is, children today are taught this in the earliest stages of life. When it comes to, there is no objective standard of truth. And all of us have a sense of it. In Rick Christianity, C.S. Lewis does a great job of laying this out. He's saying, look, there are things in society that across societies are always true. No society has ever valued somebody being you know, a liar, somebody being a traitor. No one ever values that. The opposing side does for the wrong reasons. But they would never want that person in their camp. They're a traitor. They're a liar. No society has ever said, you can have any woman you want in the, in the village, anybody you want, anytime you want. No one said that ever in society. So there are certain things that have always been seen wrong. Murdering the innocent, killing the innocent, is never seen as right. We can, we can argue it away, try and excuse it away, but in, in, at the end of it all, it's never going to be seen as something right or moral or just. Relativism simply does not work. It is a, it's, a, it's fallacious and it causes all kinds of confusion with people because it's giving us the wrong understanding of reality. It just doesn't work. There are objective things that we can, we can deny them, but we'd be fools to do so. You know, I can deny gravity, but doing it in a building I can right away that gravity, oh, it exists. It's a real thing. And if there, if there, are, if there are natural laws inscribed in, 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 the, in the universe, there are moral laws as well that are inscribed in the universe. And humans have the capacity to make, to understand what those laws are, what those truths are. We reject them when they're uncomfortable. When my lifestyle doesn't match those laws, but well, they're not any less true because we don't like them. Okay. All right. Now, back to the issue of rights. The right is a claim we have on something, right? It's strange to say I have a right to die because the reality is I don't have a claim on death. In fact, death has a claim on me. And at some point, death will exercise 
that claim on me, whether I want it or like it or not. So it is foolish to say that I have a claim on death. If I did, I could decide when I would die, how I would die, or live forever. But obviously I can't live forever, other than spiritually. So clearly there is no claim on death. All right? So a right to die, again, rights talk is all the rage right now. When I say I have a right to something, all of a sudden now, that mews the conversation. But the reality is, I don't have a right to things that are completely out of my control, that I can't ever have any kind of say over either way, and that's one of those things. Okay. Now, to further cloud things, we have those today that don't speak about ordinary and extraordinary, but the idea of active and passive euthanasia, which again, Ed spoke about this the other day, right? Now the word active implies doing something. And most are against actively doing something to end someone's life directly. The much more complicated issue is passive euthanasia which simply means omitting something or withdrawing something or withholding something. Okay. Now passive omission of extraordinary means is not euthanasia. Passive omission of extraordinary means is not euthanasia because there is no obligation to provide the means. It's extraordinary. Again, it's optional. If the person decides, I don't want this, I don't need this, I don't want to have this, and it's extraordinary, not doing it is not euthanasia. But the problem arises when it's passive omission of ordinary means, because here the omission is obligatory, and this is euthanasia. Death is intended of an innocent person, and therefore, by definition, is murder. Okay? So, passive omission of extraordinary means is not euthanasia. Passive omission of ordinary means is. Again, the girl who is 16, who has pneumonia, to deny her antibiotics, to deny her an IV, whatever she needs, that point, to deny her those things, is murder because those would help her get better and saying no to those things is going to actively cause her death all right uh, so and yeah. about the jehovah witness you have somebody in the hospital they're not taking blood even the case is needed mm -hmm. yeah that becomes one of the issues rock where it's a matter of person's religious you know, belief system up against the medical medical field. And I'm not sure in hospitals how that works, but I believe that if a person's you know, religious preferences is to not get a blood transfusion that would save your life, you know, I guess that's between them, them and God, I suppose, in, in the final analysis. Because they're, they're choosing, though, the person's choosing to not have that. So it's a matter, isn't a doctor denying them, they're choosing not receive that and again in their religious tradition that's what they do but so, as a doubt, 
Yeah. Yeah, the residents, why? They can refuse anything. Yeah. Yeah. And even yeah, like your... Yeah, Peter, ahead. Isn't that like assistant suicide? You're a doctor. You know they're going to die. Mm -hmm. They choose. They don't want the medication. Right. And you give it to them, you know, you know they're going to die. Right. Oh, yeah. Here, they have the right to refuse. This is the residence way. They have the right to refuse anything, even in the nursing home. Nobody has the right on death. No. Nobody has the right to death on death. Claims on death. Right, but the point is that you're choosing to deny to do, to not accept something that will unfortunately cause your death. But it's a matter of a religious belief that you have to believe that you know transfusions are against your 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 worldview, your tradition, or your religion. So again, you have the right to refuse that um, that treatment based on religious grounds, and I, and I assume that that's you know. Um, Practice, you know, practice in some situations where you have witnesses who go to a hospital, could be given health or to save their life, and they choose not to um, exercise the opportunity to do that. And I suppose that would be a case of um, of a complicated nature, you know, that kind of situation. Our text talked about that in the reading for tonight, but it was very inconclusive as to whether it was problematic or not. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's 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 complicated because here you have the religious belief of somebody and the medically proven help that a doctor wants to give them that would save their life. And they're choosing to reject that which could save them. But it's again, it's not a matter of them doing it because they want to die. They're doing it because their religious belief is that this is, you know, the wrong thing to do. And it becomes uh, so Rock's question is a good one. Because it comes up against the issue of my religious beliefs and somebody else's medical intervention, which could potentially save that person's life. So it gets um, it's very kind of thorny in those areas. Anthony, any any kind of comment about that? Your experience in the, working in a hospital ever come across that? You know, in, in the um, in your work, Doctor Anthony, you there. It's a curiosity. Are you there? Father, I, uh, about 25 years ago when I was in the DA's office, I responded to a, what they thought was, a, well, it was a death case. It was in Westchester, and um, the guy's laying on his bed with a dry cleaning bag over his head, suffocated. Remember Jack Kevorkian? Oh, sure. This is the way he advocated a suicide without assistance. Mm -hmm. So the people would be instructed to over-medicate with barbiturates. Mm -hmm. It would slow down their entire respiratory system and their consciousness. And then by placing the dry cleaning bag over their head and tying it tight, they fall into a nice, comfortable sleep and die. And this was advocated by Jack Kevorkian as the way to commit suicide without the assistance <clears throat> of anybody else, right? No. So, you know, of course, there's no crime there, except right. against humanity. Well, yeah, it's a pretty big crime, though. Isn't it? Yeah. I was being I sarcastic, yeah. Yeah, John. In the case of, uh, of um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and the blood transfusion, 
when I was a resident, we had a baby come in. Not quite on point, but it's interesting. And the baby had a incarcerated uh, hernia. The baby was maybe a, less than a year old. And uh, the father and mother refused to have surgery on the grounds that we may possibly need to transfuse the baby. So we called in the judge uh, and had court held right in the uh, room near the the uh, the operating room, and the judge held court. We presented the facts, and the judge uh, gave us control of the baby, so that the baby that was temporarily in our control uh, and removed the baby from the control of the parents so that we could go ahead with the surgery. Wow. So that's, that's one of the things that you can do, that we, which we did. Now, that's not an adult. Adults are a different story. Right, sure. They have, they have autonomy and et cetera that, beyond that. But, mm-hmm. but with pediatrics, you can do that. Wow. Interesting. I didn't know that. Well, again, all of this stuff is, is um, so complicated when it comes to uh, families and religions. It's and, all fact-driven, too. Very, sure. very much fact driven. You know? I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. But you know, a lot of people today, in terms of the, I, the whole issue of euthanasia and all these factors, will simply view even nutrition and hydration as uh, you know, as things that are artificially provided. Therefore, they're extraordinary. But you know, again, if you if you deny somebody these things, the question becomes: What kills the person? The disease or the withdrawal of food and water? And if the answer is the withdrawal of food and water, then you've actually actively done something to withdraw right. from them, which would sustain them in life, even if their life quality of life, so to speak, is um, vegetative state or something of that nature. So um, the omission factor here is uh, is very important. Because what, you, what you omit actually would save the person's life. So it becomes a very serious issue. And there were other cases um, like this that have happened that caused all kinds of difficulties. And you know, one of the first cases, actually, of this whole issue of nutrition was uh, in Jersey, 1985. A woman was 84 years old with severe dementia and was given a feeding tube for nutrition and hydration. Her nephew visited her and requested that she that the feeding tube be removed. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court of New Jersey, which stated that they see no difference between actively causing death or passively allowing someone to die. So in this case, the feeding tube was removed and the woman died. So here's a a court, again, this is almost, you know, 40 years ago, but it was Jersey. And we're at a case where the nephew said, you know, my aunt is has dementia, have her move the feeding tube and you know for the food and water. And the court said there's no distinction that they see between causing death or passively allowing someone to die. That to me is like insane. Like one thing is causing it. Like it's causing it to happen. Mm-hmm. Something else is allowing it to happen. It's difference. It's a huge difference right. thing. Absolutely different. But the court and you know there said, well no no this is the same same thing the woman died. That's New Jersey. What do you expect? <laughs> Father, O'Neill, Father O'Neill already taught us that nothing good comes from New Jersey. 
Oh man, look at that. One of those are different. Crazy people living there. <laughs> Sadly, that's, that can sometimes be, um, be accurate in most cases. But the the Quinlan case, okay. case was in New Jersey too, wasn't it? What case? Was the Quinlan case that Karen yeah. Quinlan? Yep, same. Yep, yep. Yeah. But you know, the, th- the challenging thing here, guys, is the whole idea of legalizing you know, killing, assisted suicide, it becomes a slippery slope. It's already happening in Europe. In Belgium, a few years ago, there was a case of two brothers, twins, actually. And they were no no wives, no families. And they were going blind. The thought of them not being able to see their sibling was so troubling to them, they wanted to die. And Belgium law allowed them to be to be killed, to be uh, to have suicide, to end their life. In in nineteen uh, have here. So the first year of legalization in Belgium, there were one thousand cases of assisted suicide. Last year, there were nine thousand cases of it. So it's more than a simple slippery slope. It's a reality that is happening. And the more states that accept it and embrace it, but again, right to die, it's merciful, this is a good thing to do. And what happens now is they'll use even religion. Because they real they look, they know that religion is the boogeyman that's gonna stand athwart their attempts here at domination of the social order. So what they're talking about to try to do is use a religious case person who believes in God, who is religious, who develops, you know, terminal brain cancer and is dying of this and has all kinds of terrible migraines and headaches from all of it. And, you know, and wouldn't God want them to be relieved of their suffering? Wouldn't God want them to use the medical science that he has given doctors the wisdom to, to administer, to help them, to use religion as a way of kind of getting in the back door because they know at the end of the day that religion is the last kind of giant to be slayed here to get their progressive ideology through the front door. And they realize this and they're gonna use that for their own advantage. And it becomes a real issue that we're gonna see as um, as time goes on. Because clearly here in America, we have gotten to that point where we uh, begin to support these things that are kind of indefensible, but we decide to defend them. And we see kind of the challenges that this kind of uh, causes for us. Unfortunately, religion has been used forever as an excuse. Look at the Crusades. Even terrorist attacks have been done in the name of religion. Yeah, yeah. Benedict XVI said that violence done in the name of religion is the highest form of blasphemy. Because to use religion to kill, to maim, to torture, all of these things. And that's why, you know, the whole idea again of of the idea of, of dignity and bodily autonomy and all of those things, that's why co- that's why coercion, slavery, exploitation, sex trafficking, with all these you know, we, we recoil at that. Because we see the way in which human dignity is denied, the way in which human dignity is is degraded because of actions like that. Where we deny the person's humanity. We get, a, we get a real good sense 
of the challenges <clears throat> that oppose that very issue of, of humanity and dignity as human beings itself. And, as um, an aside, yeah, John, yeah. What, what role do you think the devil is playing in all this? Oh, a big, a big one, I think. I think the devil is, I, I would, I would, I would um, conjecture, John, that the, the, the issues of drug overdoses today and suicides among young people today, I am convinced there is a demonic force, either demons, yeah. devil, behind that. Because there is such, yeah, there is such enormous evil that is present in all of this and, and the pain that it causes, the suffering that it causes. I have one of my classmates right now is um, an exorcist for New York, actually. And he was saying that he, that they kind of believe in their, in their kind of school of thought that the, the demons have become more emboldened because of the nature of how society has accepted things that before would have been like, you know, would have been your hair thin on edge. And instead, we're accepting it as like these positive, these good things. And Isaiah talked about it. Isaiah. Isaiah said, "Woe to you who call good evil and evil good." And my sense of it today is we're doing just that. We're saying what is good is evil, and what is evil is good. And that becomes, um, on a spiritual element, a real serious question problem. When you when you get down to the nitty gritty, you know, in, in doing medicine and so forth, when you see the evil that's involved behind all this, it just boggles the mind. It really does. The yeah. evil, the, the, that's the, the driving force behind a lot of this is, is got to be the devil. Absolutely. And again, it's an attack on the human person, an attack on human dignity. Right. And devil, he hates us. Yeah. You know, he hates us. And so he wants to show, he wants to deprive us of realizing our God-given dignity our God-given rights, a relationship with the Creator, denying that we're made in image and likeness—all of that, all of that is demonic in nature. In the Gospels, oftentimes when Jesus cures a disease or Jesus cures somebody of a serious ailment, a spirit is driven out of the person when he does that. Right. So it's showing us that there are times when a disease or an illness or whatever has some kind of demonic force behind it. I am convinced that drug addiction, drug addiction right now is rampant with the opioid problem, the heroin. Funeral homes see at least one a week come into them of an overdose, opioids, heroin, whatever the case is. We see it in the acceptance, proliferation of pornography on the internet and the incredibly degrading forms of how women are treated, and men as well are treated, but it's not only women, but men as well, in you know these videos, these, these clips and stuff of that nature. So it's a complete degradation of the human person. And we see it happening across the board wholesale in, um, in so many of the situations. And John's right, there is definitely a demonic force or forces or something like that nature behind a lot of this stuff. Because it simply is too evil. We still have our own <laughs> stupidity. And, evil uh, is amazing. Nature. Yeah. No, but again, guys, this is the work that you are going to be entering into. There is a reason why, fellas, in a rite of baptism, there's an exorcism prayer over the child. You know, it's a reality of original sin, the full, our fallen nature, 
and that we are on the front lines of this battle. Make no mistake about it. The devil hates no one more than Catholic clergy. That we bring people the sacraments. We bring people to salvation. And he sees that and he hates us for it. So when you get ordained, please God, in two years from now, as happy and joyful as it should be and it will be for you guys, understand that you are putting a bullseye on your back because you are choosing to accept a ministry that the evil one despises. And we are engaged in a battle that is not of flesh and blood. We heard in Paul, we did mass a couple days ago. Paul said this, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the power of the principalities of the air, meaning, meaning Satan and devil, demons. A lot of parishes now have started praying to St. Michael at the end of Mass. Good. We should. It should start everywhere, frankly. Because we have to realize that we are engaged in a battle that we can't see with our own eyes, but we see the effects of it in lives destroyed and families torn apart and the acceptance of things that should never be accepted. So, yeah, thank you, John, for mentioning that, because it's an important point for us to kind of get our get our head around, you know, and our ministry and the work we do. Because it's much more than simply, you know, ministry. This is real, this is real serious stuff that we're dealing with here. So thank you for mentioning that, bringing that up. Anyone want to comment on that or just make comment or-, or You know, anything? Father, you or, what what you're saying is so true. It's and it's unfortunate. I think that there are a lot of clergy who don't want to talk about this stuff. They just don't. Um, you know, Satan and the power of evil and that. Yet, if if we were armed with that information and the power that the Holy Spirit can give us through the eyes that He gives us to see it, we'd be so much more effective in dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And not just clergy. But everyone who's a, a, a Christian or a Catholic would be would be armed with the with those tools that St. Paul said we need to, yeah. to battle this stuff. Yeah. I read a book a number of years ago, excellent book. I would highly recommend it. Called The Angels and Their Ministry. And it's by uh, a Catholic Cardinal, I forget his name now, it escapes me. But it really kind of highlights the role the angels play, both the good and the and the evil angels. And you get a sense of the spiritual world that exists here. And the battle we're engaged in is not one of flesh and blood. And I was saying this morning at Mass, I, I was at a convent this morning, and I was saying to the sisters, you know, sisters, you know, we get ourselves so worked up about elections and, you know, all anxiety and stress, and we're all freaking out about tomorrow. But the reality is the kingdom of God does not come to us through presidents and senators and judges and congressmen and governors. It comes to us in each one of us who lives the life of a disciple, who is faithful to our work as a believer. The kingdom of God comes that way. And important for us, and St. Paul says it best. My favorite lines from Paul, I've heard a lot of prayer and mentioning it tonight. St. Paul says, we have here no lasting city. It's all passing away, man. You're a traveler on the road to eternity. As you can preach, Colonel Dolan was a, a student at the university. And he would travel home for Christmas and Easter, pass through a um, Ohio to get to his home in St. Louis. And he would stop at a monastery overnight for, over during his trip home. 
And one night he was out you know, staying there with the monk, and he was saying to the monk, you know, my gosh, you know, you 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 have so little in yourself, you father. And the monk said to him, well, you know, so do you. You have nothing in your suitcase. And the old one said, well, father, yeah, but I'm passing through. And the monk said, so am I. Yeah, exactly. We're all just passing through. So tomorrow, whatever happens tomorrow, <laughs> the case may be, um, our citizenship, as Paul says, is in heaven. It's not here. So don't don't fret or get too stressed out. And look, I'm going to stress tomorrow. I know that I am. That's how I thought kind of person that I am. But I remind myself, hey, man, it doesn't matter. The kingdom of God is not predicated upon kings or, or presidents or senators or congressmen. Not about that. But my, my own personal fidelity to being a disciple and being a priest. That is what my life is based upon. Not about elections and all the kind of craziness that we see happening around us. So a little forever, you know, for tomorrow's impending situation. Father, yeah, I'm not sure. You might be good. This can wait till next week, or if you're going to go on with this. But I wanted to talk, ask a question about painkillers. Sure. Is that something for tonight? Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. Uh, in the appendix, there. This is only because I witnessed this with my father in the last days of his life. It talks about painkillers that cause unconsciousness need special consideration for a person. Not only has to be able to satisfy his or her own moral duties and family obligation. They have to prepare themselves for full consciousness for meeting Christ. It's not right to provide the dying person of consciousness without a serious reason, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in my father's case, we kept him medicated on the edge. And then when hospice came in, they just knocked him out. Okay. Because they're saying, man, you're, this is cruelty, right? Because of cancer, as it progresses, it gets in the bones. I guess they explained how when cancer is in the bones, it is there's no possibility of comfort from anything so next year in our fourth year hospice is supposed to be our apostolate mm-hmm. so i just was hoping we could talk a little bit about painkillers and then consciousness and that kind of thing well again you know the document talks about consideration that's being given that's important consideration when it comes to those things it's kind of vague purposely because obviously every situation you know is, is different um in most cases the nurses may have felt in your dad's case that there was no longer a reason to keep him even somewhat conscious because of the nature of the discomfort that was going on there. But um, this is one of my pet peeves. Please, yeah. There, there are two two poles on this. One is uh, a patient who's already in a coma, who's obviously dying, but is not at that point and the hospice nurse comes in and says let's give her some morphine because it makes her more comfortable which is obviously nonsense because the patient's already in a coma how much more can you put her out and what that really does is it stops her breathing and the patient dies so that is a positive um, euthanasia in terms of, of killing somebody who's at the brink of death 
but you're hastening the patient's normal death. If you just waited a day or two or three, the patient would die normally. And to give the patient morphine at that point in time, even though the patient's in a coma, is, in my view, euthanasia. The other poll is the patient who is is dying and is in great pain and the patient does not get enough morphine or pain medicine to control the pain. And you can control pain as they do at, uh, at Calvary and so forth uh, without putting the patient into coma and then titrating that, that pain medicine as the patient progresses in their disease. And, and those are the two poles that, that happen. What I see, in, even in Catholic nursing homes, is as soon as somebody comes in who is really very close to death, they get whacked with a big bolus of morphine, and within 24 hours, they're dead. And that's what happens. And that's, I think that's euthanasia. That's, that's what my, happened to my father, John. Thank you for saying that, because that's exactly what happened. Yeah, they whacked him, and within within it wasn't in a day he was dead. They're dead, and they know that they know that they know that what what they're doing, and it frees up a bit. That's what it really does, among other things. It's it's just it's it's awful, and it's 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 it's, it's, it's just prevalent throughout the society. It happens everywhere. So, John, in, in those Jewish nursing home, Catholic nursing, Protestant, non non sectarian, it's all over the place. You know. What they do too, John, in nursing home, they put them in the home, they call the family. Nobody wants to see that. No, they don't give him anything. He's just waiting, said. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a different form. Yeah, he's dying. Nothing yeah. we can do about it. They don't even try to do anything else. Put a screen in front of them and then they turn it's around and walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to, give, to give someone a medicated dose, it's going to directly lead to their immediate death is uh is euthanasia there's no it's question euthanasia. about that yeah you know it's different it, there's a distinction though if you give somebody you know painkiller which will not immediately cause death but will may not trite life they may live you know a couple days low, low, not that they're immediately that's, dying. that's fine different. that's fine that's different. fine in your case john you're talking about you're right that's this is causing immediate almost immediate death yeah. but already in a medicated state so yeah but the challenge here is there are such you know personal issues at, at challenging time in people's lives and you know in and grief and the stress of that clouds our own decision-making process when we face stuff like you know, the fire. family does the family doesn't know yeah of course yeah yeah course they trust whatever the doctor's gonna tell them and they, they let the nurse in and then that happens and a John experience with his dad you know it's less than a day and it's over. Yep, yep. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, I, I've, um, I've been at enough bedsides in my life uh, as a priest with people that are dying in certain cases. And there is a, a value in keeping them, even, you know, if they can be somewhat in a conscious state. You know, I've gone to bedsides before, the person can't really talk anymore. They're clearly in like a fog. But I'll, you know, I can take their hand or I'll say to them, you know, if you're sorry for all your sins, you know, squeeze my hand, and they will. And then absolution is given, apostolic pardon is given, and God does the rest. So there is a value for our point of view as Catholics, with people that are, with the priest to come to the house, to keep the person in somewhat 
of a of a of a you know if they can be clear of a, of a clear state to be able to at least right. have that given to them as a benefit of the dying person. Um, well, that that's so true. Um, it'll be ten years ago um, at the end of this month that my mother passed, and it was over at uh, Montefiore. She had got she had COPD for fifteen years. She was kind of like she outlived the expectancy of her own doctor, um, but she was in the hospital for nine days. Um, and they had intubated her right away, and she was totally, totally out of it. And between my dad and my sisters, um, we made the decision to, you know, remove, remove the tube, and you know, kind of just give her at ease. Um, and when they had done it, it was on a Friday, Friday afternoon, about. 2:15, and the doctor came to us and said, "Your mother won't. Your mother will be gone by three. Well, at 11:34 p.m. is when she passed. But I was at at her side, holding her hand, like you said, and I just said to my, you know, to my mom, you know, just go. I said, "We'll take care of daddy," and and she did. She squeezed my hand. I could see her color go, and I knew. But that was my mom. Like that, at that point, was my mom. Those nine days when she was hooked up to machines and stuff, you couldn't communicate with her. You couldn't. You didn't. There was no functionality. So, it, for for me, um, it was at peace. I mean, yes, I was very upset that my mom had passed, but I I didn't show an emotion. Like I knew she was ready. Uh, so you know. You know, it's interesting how that kind of thing happens. And the way in which faith informs our whole life, I think, is, is my, my grandmother, my mom, mom, had Alzheimer's for a number of years before she passed. And she's gone now almost 20 years, my grandmother. But with Alzheimer's, as you guys know, as you get further along in it, you can't recognize anybody anymore. And you can't really know who's, who's, who's who. And it's a whole horrible thing. So we saw her. She died in March. We saw her in November, you know, about four months before. My mom said to her, she was, Mom, are you in any kind of pain? And her grandmother was a very woman of great faith. And grandma said to her, yes, I am, but it's okay. And mom said to her, no, Mom, it's not okay. And my grandmother said to her, no, no, it's okay, because God is good and God is good to me. This is a woman who everything about her, everything came from her. Recognizing people, she couldn't recognize them anymore. She was, you know, it was like a fog. But that part of her, that was her for faith, that kept her, you know, strong to the end. To the end, it was there. So again, the dignity of the person, no matter how sick they are, no matter how ill they may be, that nothing, nothing deprives them of the humanity that they have and the dignity inherent in that humanity. And it's so important for us, gents, to have a sense of that as we move forward into the work we do, you know, in hospitals. You're going to see it. You know, we already have working in hospitals, doing, doing rounds and visiting, visiting patients and stuff of that nature. And it's just a great, it's a great gift to be present to people in those moments and be able to minister to them and be Christ to them you know, in those moments. So, yeah, thank you for sharing those, those stories, guys. It's personal stuff, and I appreciate you. Um, sharing with us those um, very personal and very, and very touching uh, accounts of your own life. So, so
So there's one more thing for us to cover tonight, but I feel this is kind of a good place to end, so I don't want to end on a, on a really sour note. Um, any other questions or comments before we kind of close up for the evening? The rest of the best guy to ask a question. I know no one wants to do that. I understand. <laughs> I could cause what? you. Say again. That could be that could cause euthanasia. Yeah, well, yeah, well, well, acti actively so. Um, <laughs> just one one comment about the papers you guys wrote. You did a great job. I mean, so many of you really, really you know, made, made it creative. You were um, excellent in giving me personal accounts or hitting all the all the main topics. I was looking for more than anything else, and a lot of you guys hit this point. Was the whole concept of indissolubility? This is forever. And that children are the main thing that a marriage hopefully will lead to. Um, but a lot of you guys hit those points or mentioned them or referred to them. So um, good job. But again, the point of that assignment wasn't to give you, you know, a kind of whatever kind of thing. It was more a matter of giving you guys the facility being able to um, answer, you know, being able to um, get, get used to at least writing about the sacraments and writing about marriage and kind of that kind of thing. One, one little uh, point though, uh, you know, the, the, the priest or deacon is not the celebrant of the wedding. The couple is the celebrant of the wedding because the couple confers a sacrament on one another. The priest or deacon does not. The priest is the witness of the church or the presider of the sacrament. He is not the celebrant of the sacrament. The couple actually is. The sacrament is conferred on each other, on the priest or deacon to them. A little interesting little, you know, side for that theologically. All right. All right, so we're going to talk next week, guys, about, again, more about euthanasia in general, kind of hitting that point. And then we're going to transition into... Um, the getting of life issues as well, looking at looking at abortion, IVF, um, some of that stuff in weeks to come, organ transplants, uh, death criteria, a lot of that fun stuff. Um, for your homework on the USCCB website, you will find this document, the Ethical and Religious Directives for Catholic Health Care Services. Sixth edition. So, the USCCB website, about 30 pages. You'll find it right there for the homework assignment reading for next week. Okay. Hope we get to vote tomorrow. And if we survive, I'll see you guys next Monday. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. God bless you. See you soon.